Before we get to today's episode, I want to tell you about a cool new thing we're doing here on the Five Reasons Sports Network. We are having a soccer match, and because we're wimps and because it's a great facility, we're doing it over at Soccer Zone Indoor. That's corner of Miramar Parkway and Flamingo Road. We'll be there Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m., Wednesday night the 12th at 7.30. We've got a field for 90 minutes. You can play against the Five Reasons Sports hosts and make us look ridiculous. Here's all you need to do. You need to sign up for our patron feed. Go to at Five Reason Sports. That's the number five reason sports. Click on the link in the bio that will take you directly to our patron feed. Sign up there. It's only $3 this month. We've lowered the price for just this month to 5 bucks down to three bucks and that will be the recurring rate if you decide to renew we've got a ton of new content there including not not just sports we've actually got three two one not just sports we've actually got music reviews now from jeremy tache of swings and misses i did a commentary recently on ryan Tannehill. we've got a lengthy interview with butch davis the fiu coach it's a ton of new content there so check it out sign up for our patron feed show up 7 30 p.m Wednesday the 12th, Soccer Zone Indoor, corner of Miramar Parkway and Flamingo Road. And now, Jeff Perlman. Hey, it's Ethan Skolnick, co-host of the Five Reasons Podcast, here as always with Chris Whittingham. Now that you found us, make sure that you hit the subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast provider. That way you'll get all of our old episodes as well as all of our new episodes as soon as they post. Also, check out all of the other podcasts in our network. We now have 12 others. The best way to find them is to go to your podcast provider and type in Five Reasons Sports. We're now all grouped together on iTunes and other platforms to make it easier for you. We also have a patron feed for just $3 a month. You get a ton of additional content, and you can find that on Podbean, which is our hosting app. I also post that at Five Reasons Sports on Twitter. It is the link in our bio. All right, today got a bit of a special treat for you. Actually, it's a special treat for me, but hopefully it will be for the audience. Also, um, I don't read a ton of books. I buy books, but I don't always read them. Uh, this guy, when I buy them, I read them, and I've read several of his books. He's got a new book out right now called Football for a Buck. It's about the USFL. It's particularly topical because a lot of it is about Donald Trump, our current president. He's also written several books that apply to South Florida. He wrote a book called Showtime about the Los Angeles Lakers in the 80s. Of course, they were coached by Pat Riley. And he wrote a book called Boys Will Be Boys, which is about the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s. And then one that I know a lot of our fans, uh, our listeners down here uh, appreciate because we have so many New Yorkers. And I know that you're doing this from a taxi cab in New York as we speak. Uh, We have so many New Yorkers down here. But your book, The Bad Guys Won, about the 86 Mets, which is a team that, that I grew up following and and was actually the only time I've cried about a sporting event was when I thought they were going to lose game six. I was 13 years old. And then obviously that changed. But we're going to start here with you, Jeff, with with your new book, which is football for a buck. And the reason that this is topical, obviously, is because it's about the USFL. And somebody who was involved with the USFL is now heavily involved, not only in our politics and in our White House, but also in the NFL in terms of tweeting every other minute about what NFL players are doing. So can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about uh, and what inspired you to write it? Well, to me, the USFL is as joyful. It was a spring football league, 1983 to 85. And it, uh, you know, it challenged the NFL pretty directly. They signed three straight Heisman Trophy winners, uh, Herschel Walker, Mike Rozier, Doug Flutie. They brought the world, you know, Steve Young and Jim Kelly and Reggie White and, 
you know, about 200 NFL players started the USFL. And I just was a kid growing up in New York who loved the league. And, and I fought to write this book for years. I was told, don't write this book. Nobody cares, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, two things happened. Number one, I got a book deal just because I, I desperately wanted it. And uh, the owner of the New Jersey Generals of the USFL ran for president. And against <laughs> everybody's, I mean, not everybody, everyone in my family's better, whatever, he won. And I mean, <laughs> it's actually crazy. The USFL, if you want to, if you want to know, I'm not just saying this for the book, I swear to God. If you want to understand Donald Trump, read about the USFL and you will understand everything you need to know about how that guy operates. That is no exaggeration. Yeah, and that feels like probably the biggest hook right now is that it gives real legitimate insight to his business practices in a way in which really nothing else, because it's such a clandestine organization that he runs for, obviously, his real estate business and otherwise, but this is him interacting with other people that have stories, and in some ways, a lot of people fault him for bringing down the league, so... Uh, without giving away too much, I imagine it's probably the most meaty, you know, portions. Although I, I read your, uh, your 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 sort of letter to your fans uh, today on on Twitter, and it, there's a lot of great stuff here. But I imagine in terms of the national conversation, those are probably featured the most prominently. Without giving away too much, what sort of uh, can you tell us about what you learned about Donald Trump as as a result of reporting this book? I don't mind giving away. I don't mind giving it away. To me, it's a public service. Um, this is a true story. 1983, the USFL has its first season. Uh, Donald Trump is not an owner of a team. He buys the New Jersey Generals uh, in 1984. In the lead-up to buying the Generals, he talks about how much he loves the USFL, what a great football league it is, and he's excited to be a part of it. As soon as he gets the Generals, it's, we need to move to fall. We need to take on the NFL. Uh, if God wanted football in the spring, he wouldn't have invented baseball. Spring football is a joke, blah, blah, blah. Um, shortly thereafter, he arranges a private meeting with Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner. Uh, at the Pierre Hotel in New York City. He pays for a suite. Donald Trump did. And he tells Roselle, I don't give a crap about the USFL. I don't care about this league. I want an NFL franchise. What do I have to do to get an NFL franchise? This is behind the backs of USFL owners. He's basically plotting against his own league to get an NFL franchise. The only reason he bought a USFL team is to get in the NFL. So P. Roselle says to him very bluntly, as long as I'm involved in the NFL, as long as my family is involved in the NFL, you will not have anything to do with this league. He, uh, he viewed Donald Trump as a con man, as slimy, as unworthy of the NFL. The NFL was old money. It was Maris, Rooney. He just didn't view, view Trump as worthy. So Trump then decided the best thing we can do is try to force a merger. Because Donald Trump's goal was to have a team in Manhattan. The Jets had just moved to Queens. There was this big opening in Manhattan. He thought he would move to, he originally, the, the, his team would play in Shea. Eventually, they built a stadium in Manhattan. So Trump leads a lawsuit against the NFL, uh, and he convinces the other owners through sheer force of will of lying about how I'm gonna, we're going to get a fall TV deal. It's going to be so easy. I've already talked to the networks. They want us to move to fall. All this nonsense over and over and over again. They end up suing the NFL antitrust lawsuit led by Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a star witness for the USFL. The jurors find him ridiculous and despicable. The NFL, actually the USFL wins a lawsuit but only wins a dollar and the USFL dies. And Donald Trump dismisses the loss of jobs of a league as small potatoes. And, um, and that's it for the USFL. He never cared. Never cared. So when you look at what's happening now and the constant tweeting about the league, I know a lot of this is to appeal to his base. I mean, it has a certain edge to yeah. it. I, I think obviously it's gaslighting to a certain degree, but but how much of it is just personal animus that he has towards the league? Because it, it was not just the USFL. I mean, he tried to buy the Bills uh, a few years ago and tried they, to buy the Colts. 
tried to buy the Colts in 1980, failed. Tried to buy the Bills, failed. Tried to get the Dallas Cowboys, failed. Uh, sued the NFL, failed. Uh, tried to force a merger, failed. It is one failure after another. This has nothing to do with patriotism. It's the biggest, anyone who buys that, and I'm not speaking, I swear to God, I'm speaking as a guy who researched the USFL, not as a Republican or a Democrat. Anyone who buys that this is about patriotism and dealing has no idea what they're talking about. When Donald Trump was an owner of the New Jersey Generals, this is documented. They would play the National Anthem at games. He'd be sitting there doing his work, talking on his phone. It's the biggest nonsense ever. It's a longstanding grudge against a league that rejected him. That is all this is. And I'll tell you something else that's really interesting. If you want to know past his prologue and how this sort of shows you what's going on here, a um, couple of examples. 1985, Donald Trump signed Doug Flutie out of Boston College, highest paid, uh, based on the highest paid football player in the, in the history of the sport. He writes a letter to the other owners of the league and the commissioner saying, I have signed Doug Flutie. I've done a great service to this league. I expect the other owners to help pay for Doug Flutie's contract. It was Mexico, the wall, 30 years before the wall. All the other owners... <laughs> All the other owners basically were like, hell no, not going to happen. They never did. How about this? There was another owner named John Bassett of the Tampa Bay Bandits. John Bassett was the one guy in the USFL who saw Trump for the con man he thought him to be. John Bassett, uh, in 1984, toward the end of the 84 season, was diagnosed with brain cancer, uh, inoperable brain cancer. As soon as Don John Bassett got sick, Donald Trump just walked all over him, walked all over him, saw it as an opening for his own sort of plans, and never showed an ounce of empathy, sympathy, understanding. 30 years later, John McCain, the biggest thorn in Donald Trump's side of the Republican Party, diagnosed with brain cancer, also walks all over him. The, the parallels, there are a million of them. The parallels between Donald Trump as a USFL owner, if you want to know who he is and how he operates, take two seconds and read about the USFL. I don't care if you read my book or do a Google search. It's all out there and it's preposterous. In terms of the day-to-day -day and in terms of the, the players and the front office people within the general's organization, was there sort of a more a, a, a heightened sense of what it was actually like to be in an organization run by him? Yeah, well, it's interesting. If you were a New Jersey general player, like here's a funny thing. I grew up as a general's fan. I think Donald Trump is a horrible president. I grew up as a general's fan. When I was a kid, I loved Donald Trump. He was paying big money for players. You know, he did go out and get all these guys. He got Brian Seifel, Gary Barbro, Jim McClare, a million NFL players. He was paying big money for players. But looking back, it was disastrous for the league. So the players at the time loved Donald Trump because he was making them rich. You know, um, people who worked for him, he treated them well. He was, a, he was a good employer. They got paid. A lot of USML teams weren't paying people. They stopped paying. The bills started bouncing. Donald Trump always paid his bills. So it's not that he was a bad football owner, but he was terrible for the greater good, which was the league. If he's not involved, uh, what do you think the USFL becomes? I think ultimately emerges with the NFL. I think um, stays the spring league. The spring plan, the USFL's plan was amazing. It really was. The original plan was we're going to be a spring league. We're going to um, we're going to play 18 games. Each team, we're going to keep salaries. We're going to keep payrolls relatively low. Each team can sign one or two marquee guys. So just an example, uh, Craig James out of SMU signed with the Washington Federals. Okay, that's our marquee guy. Gary Anderson out of Arkansas signed with the Tampa Bay Bandits. That was our marquee guy. The idea was good. They were going to draft regionally. So the Tampa Bay Bandits, most of their players were guys from Florida and Florida State, Bethune-Cookman. So you're, you're someone who's watched Jimmy Smith play high school ball in Gainesville and then play college ball. You can watch him in the, in the professional league. It was a great idea. So I think eventually, I think it would have lasted a lot longer. I think the 87 player strike in the NFL would have done wonders for a USFL. I think you would have had a ton of guys jumping. And I think ultimately five or six of those teams would have been absorbed into the NFL. You have to remember, 
Jacksonville was a U.S. NFL franchise. They had a franchise in Tennessee and Memphis. Birmingham was a booming market for the USFL. Uh, the, the Philadelphia Stars moved to Baltimore. She would have had a team in Baltimore. It really had an opportunity to do something big, and, but they followed a really dumb path. I want to get to uh, to, to some of your crazier anecdotes. So uh, you, you tweeted out uh, today, every time an author has a book release, law requires you write this sort of letter to friends and relatives. And so you include parenthetically sort of the headlines for a few stories. I imagine there are probably thousands of these as it relates to the USFL because it always seems like these kind of newer organizations. Like I've, I've read about the uh, original days of MLS and there's similar kinds of anecdotes about not having, you know, paint to draw the lines for the for the 18-yard box and all that yeah. kind of stuff, like like those sorts of anecdotes. And actually, the business model you just described sounds pretty MLS-y, but uh, you look at uh, – so you said here a cut player – punching his coach in the face, a team placing a player on the injured list after he slammed his penis in a trunk, and a coach cheating by sending his assistants to videotape opposing team practices. So uh, for, I, I, I'm not going to ask you to tell all of them because, again, we want people to buy the book, which, again, is football for a buck. Uh, so can you tell at least one of those stories and maybe uh, preview a few others that are in the book? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a million. Let me just say this. I can just roll this off real quick for you. The Washington Federals starting quarterback for a while was Joe Gilliam, who had been Terry Bradshaw's backup in Pittsburgh. By the time Joe Gilliam was a Federal, he was a, uh, he was a really struggling drug addict. The Federals pick him up from the airport, their PR guy, 24-year-old PR guy named Rick Vaughn picks him up. Joe Gilliam says, we got to stop for a beer. He's drinking a beer on his way to his own press conference. He ends up living in a halfway house because he's a coke addict. So he's living in a halfway house while playing quarterback for the Washington Federals. The Chicago Blitz and the Arizona Wranglers uh, they were two teams in the USFL. Their entire rosters were traded for each because the owner of the Chicago Blitz lived in Phoenix and didn't feel like making the nine-hour flight to um, to Chicago. So they just traded rosters completely. What? Um, Greg Field. Yeah, yeah, they traded rosters. The biggest trade in pro football history. The Arizona Wranglers and the Chicago Blitz were actually traded for one another. Oh, my God. The craziest thing ever. <laughs> a million. When I, when I say there are a million stories in this thing, it's the craziest stuff I've ever heard of in my life. A San Antonio gunslinger player did, in fact, slam his penis in a trunk and was put on the injured list with strange groin. The same team, the San Antonio gunslingers, they used the owner was so cheap to paint the field with the hash marks and the, and the logos. They used industrial spray paint instead of uh, sort of the paint you use for fields. So players would slide on this crappy asset <laughs> and you get these paint cuts in their skin. So there's a story of like Steve Young with the LA Express play tamp, played in San Antonio. And he's taking a shower, and he's screaming from the hot water, mixing with the with the big cuts on his on his body, with the paint lodged into the uh, to the wound. It is the craziest stuff ever. There was a guy, Greg Fields, who played for San Antonio. He started in L.A. He got cut. He was a defensive lineman out of Grambling. He punched his coach in the face when he got cut because um, because um, he was in, in you know incensed that he got cut. Then he started calling in death threats to the team that he was going to shoot the coach. Then the, the team hired Liberace's bodyguard away from Liberace to defend the coach and, and to be a, a bodyguard oh, to the coach God. because this guy's calling in death threats. And this is the best part of it. The San Antonio Gunslingers needed defensive line help. So they literally signed this guy as a free agent, even though he threatened to kill his coach. He shows up in San Antonio. The Gunslingers owner stops paying players. And this guy's pissed off. His name is Greg Fields. So one day he gets a baseball bat, follows the gunslinger's owner to his house, and the uh, the owner gets out in front of his mansion. Greg Fields is standing there with a baseball bat. He says, "I see where you live, and I know you have money. You want to do something about this?" The owner says, "Wait here." He runs inside. 
comes out with a, a paper bag filled with ten thousand dollars in cash. He says, "Are we good?" Greg Field says, "Yeah, we're good." He's never seen again. Who the owner or the player? <laughs> the player. He leaves and is never seen again. And in fact, I could not find anyone who found him. And I had no one knew where he was. He vanished off the face of the earth. I took my son on a road trip because I had two addresses for him. Uh, we drove from from L.A. to San Francisco, and a day later, my son Emmett, who was nine at the time, me and Greg Fields, the punch hitter, the uh, coach hitter, are sitting in a food court in Sacramento eating Cold Stone Creamery. Oh my God, that's unbelievable! So, what was he like? So, what does he do now? What What's the postscript on the story? The postscript is number one: he spit ice cream all over me because he spits when he talks. <laughs> but it was okay because it was cherry. It was cherry with jubilee, so that's okay. But um, he's like a retired football player. He's a little battered from the game. He's unemployed, you know. Wants to get into coaching, but um, he's like, yeah, I did that. You know, he's like, yeah, did that, did that, did Amazing. that too. I mean, Amazing. the league is the craziest. They basically so, let so, everyone in. So how did you have difficulty selling the book? Is it because it's an old subject matter from the 80s? Because the other thing, too, is like, so I'm, I'm 26 years old, but I know about the USFL because there was a 30 for 30 about it, and it was like one of the first ones. Yeah. So it kind of like reintroduced this league into the consciousness, and then Trump as well kind of only a, 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 a accelerates that sort of awareness about it. So what was the difficulty in, in selling it? I think a few things. Number one, there are a lot of people who don't know what the USFL is. Sure. Number two, Trump wasn't really involved when I was pitching the book. Like, People were like, oh, you pitched a Trump book. And I'm like, I did no such thing. I didn't want Donald Trump is never a part of my dream of writing this book is telling Donald Trump stuff. He just happens to be. And, and, you know, it's harder to get a book deal now than it was 10 years ago. And, and the only reason I got it, I think, is because I've had some success in the business and saying, look, I have these bestsellers and blah, 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 blah. And I took almost no, I'm not just saying this. I took almost no money to write this book. It is the least amount of money I've ever gotten paid. Um, and if you want to call me the underdog, I mean, I'm coming out on the same day as Bob Woodward's book. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, no pressure. It's like, no pressure. I mean, there really is no pressure because, you know, it's a USFL book. But I, I'm telling you, I've never written a crazier book. And you got, I wrote The Bad Guys 1 and I wrote Boys and Boys. crazy stories. Mm-hmm. Nothing rivals the pure, insane ludicrous, ludicrousness of the USFL. That's that's insane. I, I mean, you, you might get a better idea about Trump from this than Woodward's book. We'll have to compare the two because I'm planning on buying that today. We'll get back to the episode here in a second. But I want to tell you about a cool new promotion on the Five Reasons Sports Network. If you take out an ad package with us, that's at least five spots somewhere on the Five Reasons Sports Network. If your business does that, your business will get a free 30-minute consult with miss-inc.com. That's miss-ink. They're social media problem solvers. Missy Buck Iglesias and her team will help you with social media marketing and content writing. They've been in business here in Miami for more than 10 years, and they believe in a personal, customized approach to marketing. So they only represent businesses like ours, like yours, that are serious about taking their visibility to the next level. So reach us over at... This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, 
Wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Miami Heat. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Five Reasons Sports. Let us know that you want to advertise. We will set you up with Misty to help you grow your platforms, whether they're Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Again, it's miss-inc.com, miss-inc.com. And now, back to Jeff Perlman. All right, Jeff, I want to move on to some of your other books here uh, and some of the... I just want to say, yep. I, I just want to say it's important. I love Bob Woodward, and I have nothing but respect, and I would read his books. So it's not, there's no anger or anything at all. I mean, much respect. It's just it's hard coming out on the same day as the book of the year. Yeah, no, 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 no doubt about it. All right, so let's move on to yeah. some other some other characters here that I know people down here in South Florida are familiar with. Um, you know, I, I read your Showtime book in about two sure. sittings and and uh, and actually used some of it um, in, in some stuff that I wrote because I, I do think it gives you some insight not only into the players of that time but to Pat um, quite a bit. And, and I think Pat has has referenced some of it. I mean, not directly, not the book, but some of the, the themes that you hit on in there about him kind of at the end, you know, buying into himself a little bit too much and kind of having his own disease of me, as he calls it in, in his book, uh, The Winner Within, where he covers some of that. I, I was always curious about that. Did you get any cooperation from Riley for that book? Because I know you got cooperation uh, from a lot of people. No, I got zero cooperation from Riley. And I tried and tried and tried and just didn't, uh, it, yeah. It just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. But, now, um, now, now, Jeff, what was yeah. I'm, cur- I'm curious about that because he he has been over the years uh, more and more accessible. I mean, he gave um, ESPN.com like you know carte blanche to spend like you know two months with him uh, during the the six the what was it the sixteen seventeen season. Uh, I mean, I, I he gave me interviews in his office that he never used to give before uh, to me at least. I, what was his objection? Did you hear from somebody? Was it somebody you tried to reach? I just somebody? heard from his office. I just heard from his office that he wasn't interested and I had, I tried having people come, you know, I had tried, I tried having people court sort of speak on my behalf and, uh, you know, nobody's obligated to speak. I always say that. So I wasn't, um, I wasn't upset, but it just, it just, I never came that close to getting it. I just never came that close. It was never, uh, it was a little frustrating. The good news is a million people are willing to talk about them. Um, I'm not saying that this is sell books. It doesn't, you know, books kind of old now, it doesn't even matter. But people, there's a million Pat Riley stories 
and people are more than happy to sort of talk about him. But I, yeah, I just was never able to get that done. So give it, give us a couple. I mean, cause I, I've read them, but just for our audience, like a, a couple of your favorite Riley stories from, uh, from Showtime. And again, this covered uh, the Lakers dynasty of the, of the 1980s. Well, the thing I, um, the thing I really found fascinating with him was his final season coaching the Lakers. Like, you know, I'm, I always feel this way when I write books, like the, the glory years and the best years are usually the least interesting because they're the most well-documented, you know? So we all know about, you know, Showtime and blah, blah, blah. The final year, he became, and he would admit this, I think, a complete and total tyrant, unbearable. You know, got really caught up in his own press clippings, really arrogant, um, believed the hype. And the Laker players, including Magic, including, you know, Michael Cooper, those guys, they just really started to hate him. They truly started to hate him. And there was a moment, you know, he was at the end, he, the Lakers had a longtime PR guy named John Black. And at the end, it was really antagonistic um, because he felt the media was out to get him. He felt that just, he really got paranoid and felt that everyone was kind of out to get him. And, um, you know, he won the, his final year. I believe it was his final year of the Lakers. He was the NBA coach of the year. And I think when he was told he won the award, his reaction was, F those guys, I don't care. You know, like, he just became kind of a jerk. And I think leaving the Lakers gave him, I don't think he's a particularly humble man, I think it gave him probably a perspective he needed because I think he lost it at the end. I and do. and uh, so when, when you say that he was, he's a tyrant, do you kind of have examples? I, obviously, you mentioned the, the, the coach of the year voting, but with the players and, and kind of the way that he, he might have lost a, a handle on the locker room, and where, where do you feel like he kind of finally found his equilibrium and sort of gained the confidence of not necessarily being that way anymore? All right, so he used to have this thing called peripheral distractions, right? And it was his term. You cannot get burdened by peripheral distractions. And that meant wives, girls, friends, uh, your kids, media. And, you know, toward the end, he got really, really sort of crazy about it all. And um, players were not supposed to bring their wives on the road. And I believe it was Byron Scott's wife, Bonita. Oh, and it was Wanda Cooper, Wanda Cooper, uh, Michael Cooper's wife. They flew to a game on their own and sat in the stands on their own. And Pat Riley saw them in the stands and went off on the players. And that did not go over well at all. Because, I mean, who is he to say a wife can't go to a basketball game, you know? And it became really interesting because his wife, Chris, Pat's right, uh, wife, Chris, was kind of a part of it. And the wives used to really like her. And I think after a while, they really started to resent her. Because, again, it became like this cult-like thing where everything Pat Riley said needed to be followed. Um, I think he rediscovered himself in New York with the Knicks. And I really think what kind of happened that was really good for him, and this is going to sound weird, but, but true. First of all, New York is such a different world than L.A. And he developed, he really, in a weird way, proved himself as a coach with the Knicks because he always had magic. He had Korean for almost his entire run in L.A. And when he went to New York and he took what he had there, like it's easy, what most coaches tend to do, and this is why most coaches sort of struggle, is they have one style and they stick to it. And they make the players adjust to the style. And sometimes, I, I mean, I always think of Bum Phillips, the Houston Oilers. He had one way. It was Earl Campbell up the middle. And when he went to New Orleans and he didn't have an Earl Campbell anymore, but he was running the same offense, it did not work. Pat Riley goes to New York, and he has Oakley and Starks and Ewing, and these hard-nosed, edgy guys who are brought up playing physical basketball. 
and he completely and totally changed the way he coached. It was one of the most amazing coaching jobs I've ever seen, even though they didn't win the title, but it got him to the, to the finals. And I really think he rediscovered himself in New York and rediscovered his love of coaching and why he enjoyed this. So, Jeff, the one relationship that's most fascinating to me um, in the book, I mean, you have a lot of great stuff in there about all the Lakers, but, but the Magic-Riley uh, relationship uh, really fascinates me because it, it's still going. I mean, it's still topical at this point because basically, you know, Magic Johnson is getting to do what Pat Riley wanted, which is to have LeBron towards the end of his career, right? And 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 build something with LeBron where it looks like it actually might be lasting, uh, which is not an opportunity LeBron really ever gave Gilbert because he was going year to year. But he, he gave, he's given Magic Johnson four years. And I know the affection that Pat has for Magic, but I also know this must be burning at him a little bit that, you know, this was supposed to be him. It was supposed to be the heat. Now it's going to be the Lakers and his old franchise. I mean, how do you, as someone who wrote about their relationship and how close it was, and like you said, I know it frayed a little at the end, but it's clearly come back. How do you view that? I don't view it the same way you do, actually. I don't think, I don't, I don't know. Maybe this comes from doing sports, being in sports writing a long time. These things all happen. Like they just happen. Like this is how it goes in sports. And if you've been around as long as Pat Riley has or Phil Jackson, you recognize that there are a lot of sort of highs and lows in sports. And, and you know, I, I just think there's enough distance now between LeBron James in Miami and where he is now. I can't imagine Pat Riley is overly upset, literally, about LeBron going to L.A. and LeBron going with Magic. Also, that relationship, blah, 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 that relationship between Riley and, and Magic is a very strong relationship. And I don't think it's one that's sort of – I don't think there's that much jealousy there. I think there's a lot of respect there. And I think Pat Riley views Magic as either sort of a younger brother or perhaps a, an oldest son. So I don't know. I don't see it. I don't see it that way. I could be wrong, but I don't see it that way. On a previous episode of the podcast, we had Dan Lebetard of uh, ESPN on, and uh, I asked him if he thought that Pat Riley's public persona of Armani and suave and slick back hair was actually reflective of him as a human being. Uh, would you find that to be the case? Because I feel like in some, obviously he's, he's very guarded in terms of doing media. And I feel like we don't know a great deal about what he's actually like, but would you say that always wearing a, a perfectly tailored suit and, you know, being, you know, one of the, it's weird to say about a coach, but almost like a sex symbol on the sideline. Do you feel like that's actually the way that he is? I don't, it's not the way he was raised and connected in New York, and it's not the way he was at Kentucky. Certainly wasn't the way he was as a player. This guy was a hard nosed kind of thug. Um, it's really interesting. I just thought of something. It's such a weird comparison, but I have a nephew who's, uh, who's 18 and he's a freshman in college. And he's, he's a very smart kid and he dresses really well. And he's very concerned because of the age with sort of how people view him, you know? And, and, and I always say to him, like, you have to be careful because that can become you where you dress really well and you think about how people view you and suddenly it kind of consumes you and it becomes a bigger part of your life than you ever thought it would. And I do think that became Pat Riley. I think he started to really believe the image and really believe the clips and really believe the, you know, Michael Douglas comparisons and looking to be so suave and he's on the cover of GQ. I don't think that was him growing up and it certainly wasn't him coming up, but I do think it was him in, in LA and New York and Miami. I do. I think he believed it. And if you believe it, Sometimes it just kind of becomes what it is. This is the Five Reasons Sports Network, Miami Sports On Demand. We now have 13 podcasts in the network posting roughly 15 times per week, all absolutely free. Find all of our shows on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Podbean. Plus, become a member of our patron feed and you'll get even more fresh content. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. 
Here's some of what you missed last week on Ballscast. It's legitimately dreadful watching the Dolphins, man. Like, is this, <laughs> is it worth it to be a Dolphin fan? Like, this is, this feels terrible. If you want to get involved as a sponsor or a contributor, reach out to us at number five reason sports on Twitter. Don't forget to punch five reasons in your search bar and then hit subscribe. All right, let's transition to another of your books. And again, this is a book that you didn't write about Miami, but it's about a figure who was big in Miami. You actually talked to Dan Levitard quite a bit about this guy also and how he's changed over the years because they have a relationship. So what kind of cooperation? I'll ask the same question I did with Riley. What kind of cooperation did you get from Jimmy Johnson on Boys Will Be Boys? He gave me one interview, which was pretty good, actually. You know, he, 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 people told me he was going to be tough to get because he, he hasn't talked that much about the Cowboys sort of for that sort of long form kind of uh, thing. And he was cool. He was good. I mean, that Dallas Cowboy team was, when you talk about Miami, Michael Irvin, Steve Walsh, Russell Maryland, Jimmy. I mean, there's a gazillion Miami guys. When he really, back when he started, when he first got there, he was getting ridiculed because he was doing sort of bringing in, it was almost like Spurrier when he coached the Redskins and brought in all those former Florida guys. I mean, he brought, he traded for Alonzo Highsmith. He just brought in one Miami guy after another because his belief at the time was the Miami Hurricanes were better than the Dallas Cowboys, the ones he took over in 89. So uh, there's a lot of ties up. Actually, it's really an interesting kind of thing. So, and you, you say that your USFL book is the, is the book with the most stories, but I feel like the Charles Haley anecdotes in particular from that Cowboys book were, were so well were so well reported on, and like they really took off. So, I, I'm I'm surprised that the USFL that the USFL book would top this Cowboys book because it felt like that story was or that book was so rich with stories. It's very funny. There's a uh, there's a comparable figure in the. I actually kept thinking of Charles Haley because there's a guy. So Charles Haley from my book sort of infamously was a uh, public masturbator in the uh, Cowboys locker room, which was a little, little weird. And um, there was a guy on the uh, Michigan Panthers, the U.S. named John Corker, who had some severe substance abuse problems. And uh, he was, he was it not seems to be a theme of the USFL off. book, Jeff, uh, substance abuse problems. Substance abuse, drunk flights, and punching coaches. Um, <laughs> I could call it, that could have been the name of the book. This guy, John Corker, <laughs> used to like to walk around the locker room showing off the size of his manhood. And um, he famously once fell asleep on the ice. They broke into Joe Lewis Arena and he fell asleep on the ice and woke up the next morning with his face frozen to the surface of Joe Lewis Arena. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like the scene in a Christmas story where the kid's tongue is stuck right, to the exactly, ball. Exactly, yeah. Because his face is stuck to the ice. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. They almost had a Miami team, too. I just want to say they, um, in fact, uh, Donald Trump almost hired Don Shula, the coach of New Jersey Generals. They had a deal in place, oh, and um, he was going to make him the highest paid po- uh, coach in pro football history. Don Shula hated Joe Robbie at that point. It was, uh, he had a uh, $1 million deal, uh, $1 million per season contract. Shula also wanted a suite in Trump Tower, and they were negotiating back and forth. And Donald Trump went on TV on a halftime of one of the uh, NFL games and was asked about it and said, we're very close to signing Coach Shula. We're just having some negotiations, but we're really close. And it hadn't been public news yet. And the Colts, uh, the Dolphins had just beaten the Colts. There was a post-game press conference. And one of the first questions someone asked was, so Donald Trump said, you're very close to jumping to the New Jersey Generals. And Shula was livid, livid and immediately decided not to go to USFL. 
But if Trump had not made that mistake, uh, Don Shula leaves the Dolphins to coach the New Jersey oh my Generals. God, this it's like a legitimate sliding doors moment in the history of uh, of the history of the Dolphins. So, so it, yeah. and that, that's also another parallel to today. Donald Trump unable to keep uh, his mouth shut on an important secret that he needs to uh, not divulge. Yeah, there's a you know he was always bragging. And the other thing is at the time the U.S. of L was when he invented his fake publicist, John Barron. He would literally would call people up and say he would pretend he was Donald Trump's publicist. I'm calling on behalf of Mr. Trump. This is John Barron, his publicist. And there's Donald Trump disguising his voice. And he would disguise his voice and say, Mr. Trump is very serious about moving to the fall. Um, would you like to speak to him about it? And the reporter would say, yeah, sure. All right, let me put you in touch with Donald Trump. And 10 minutes later, hey, this is Don. John Barron told me you wanted, me, uh, you wanted to talk to this is really funny if it wasn't so sad, Jeff, um, honestly. But, oh, my um, God. So sad. <laughs> I believe me when I tell you this. It's like I've never written on a sports book where I more wanted to freaking jab my eyeballs out because you're like, pass this prologue. I yep. kept saying pass this prologue over and over again. I would say to my wife, it's unbelievable, pass this prologue. All right, let's move to one more. I know this has some appeal to uh, to people down here. As I mentioned at the top, you know, I grew up a Met fan, you know, on Long Island. And I, my question for you about that book, The Bad Guys One, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and all the characters in there, is we you know, is we've seen uh, you know baseball change here. Uh, it, it feels it feels to me like more of a niche regional sport than a national sport. We've seen that. I know the ratings yeah. popped, popped back a little bit uh, last year. I know you've also written books about Clemens and Bonds, so. I mean, you have a, uh-huh. and, you're, and you're in New York where, where baseball it still matters a lot. We've, we've had problems in Miami where it doesn't matter. And now Derek Jeter, we'll see how that works out. But the question I have about the 86 Mets is I've, I covered the big three heat teams. Uh, stay away from that one, Jeff, because I want to do that one eventually. But I, I covered the big yeah. three, <laughs> I, I, I covered the big three heat teams. And, and I, I say I don't know that we'll ever see uh, a, ba- a situation in the NBA like that again. We may see better teams like the Warriors. Right now, maybe a better team, but I don't know if we'll see one with the, the cultural significance that that team had. Are we ever going to see a baseball team like the 86 Mets again? Because I, I don't know if it was just because it was New York, but I mean, you had Doc, you had Daryl, you had Keith, you had Gary Carter. I mean, Davey Johnson. Yeah. It just, it, I, are we ever going to see a team like that again in, in Major League Baseball? Right, so there are a few things that were really unique about the 86 Mets. And the, the biggest reason you won't see that again is because they don't have kegs in the clubhouse anymore. I'm actually being serious about that. After every game, the Mets players would hang out in the clubhouse tapping a keg. And the unity that they had was very unique. Like nowadays, you go into a clubhouse and everyone's on their phone. And afterwards, they go off on their own. You're certainly not going out and getting wasted at a bar. Like they used to go to this bar in Long Island, in McCool's. And you see, you could you go to the bar. There's Kevin Mitchell with Lee Mazzilli and blah, blah, blah. And they're all getting wasted. That stuff doesn't happen anymore. The other thing you have to remember about the 86 Mets, and this is where I become a bit of a geek. All right. First base, Keith Hernandez. Second base, Wally Backman and Tim Tuffle. Two second basemen capable of starting for most teams in Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. Shortstop, Rafael Santana, not great. Third base, Ray Knight and Howard Johnson. Two third basemen capable of starting for most teams. Catcher, Gary Carter, best catcher in baseball. They had two center fielders, Mookie Wilson and Lenny Dykstra, who were starting for most Major League teams. They had Darryl Strawberry and right. Left field was kind of a, a mishmash. Like, their starting rotation was insane. You know, Gooden, Ojeda, Darling, Sid Fernandez, their fifth starter, Rick Aguilera, went on to be one of the best closers of the 90s. And their two closers, Jesse Roscoe and Roger McDowell, would both be top closers for most teams. 
they were just a ridiculously preposterously deep baseball team. And Santana always used to drive me crazy because he would throw those lollipops over to first base. So, but uh, he always got him out though. He he, he, he always did, but he waited until the last possible second. But you're right. I mean, I can still. I mean, that's the thing about it too, Jeff. Uh, I can still name every player on that team. Just like I can, I can still name. Yep every player on the on the Islanders in the early early 80s and uh, I, I just don't feel that's the case uh, with baseball anymore you just don't you just don't see that anymore and you mentioned the characters I mean I, I didn't even mention Lenny and obviously Dykstra's had uh, an interesting uh, post post career um, well Jeff we really appreciate you taking the time with us today uh, again you can buy the book football for a buck you also should check out Jeff Perlman.com you can find um, all of his other books on there as well as the stories behind them and uh you know again uh, jeff always would love to have you on the show again unless you write a book about the big three he because uh <laughs> because it's out next week actually uh, yeah yeah yeah, sure. well, yeah well we'll see if you release that uh you know the next time woodward releases a book so check out football for <laughs> oh, a buck uh by jeff perlman you can follow him on twitter at jeff perlman we'll talk to you soon Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.